Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. This week we're going to be talking about Dead of Night, the role-playing game of, what would you call it, Scott? Cinematic horror? B-movie horror. That's the way it's described, but as we'll go into, it's a bit more than that, really. But before we jump into our discussion of Dead of Night, it's time for the Lovecraftian... Word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, the word is horror. A noun meaning one extreme fear, terror, dread. Hmm, I thought dread was a different game. Okay. <laughs> Two, intense loathing, hatred. Three, a thing or person causing fear, loathing, etc. Four, modifier, having a frightening subject, especially a supernatural one. Now this is really quite a commonplace word for us to choose as a Lovecraftian word. On the other hand, it is a quintessentially Lovecraftian one. Lovecraft used the hell out of horror. I this this turns up uh, not not in in various forms. I like horrifying, but just as the word horror, uh, two hundred and sixty two times in his work. And it turns up in, in the titles of two stories, The Horror at Red Hook and The Dunwich Horror. And it really cuts to the core of what Lovecraft is about. I, the various uses that we went through there, um, the, 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 the dread, the hatred, the loathing, and these, you know, as we've said in a number of other words of the week, these are all the sentiments that, that run through Lovecraft's work like veins through blue cheese thinking of potentially a third isn't there the horror and um, the horror in the museum yes that was one of his revisions or collaborations i when i've talked in in the past about the number of times it's used in his fiction i've i've always gone for just the fiction that's attributed to him personally and not the collaborations because you know they, they, that's very murky there's lots of them around there mm. and it's it's always it's always difficult to sort of count those into the word counts that i do because a lot of them don't exist in digital formats that i can search mm. From the shunned house, there are horrors beyond horrors, and this was one of those nuclei of all dreamable hideousness which the cosmos saves to blast an accursed and unhappy few. And from he, I saw this vista, I say, and heard, as with the mind's ear, the blasphemous Dom Daniel of Cacophony which companioned it. It was the shrieking fulfilment of all the horror which that corpse city had ever stirred in my soul. And forgetting every injunction to silence, I screamed and screamed and screamed as my nerves gave way and the walls quivered about me. And finally, from Pickman's model. The man was not a fantasist or romanticist at all. He did not even try to give us the churning prismatic ephemera of dreams 
but coldly and sardonically reflected some stable, mechanistic, and well-established horror world, which he saw fully, brilliantly, squarely, and unfalteringly. On to tonight's main topic, Dead of Night. So what is Dead of Night? Really fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very simple, light horror role-playing game designed expressly for one-shots, though, as we'll discuss later, you can play campaigns with it. And it describes itself in the text as a role-playing game of campfire tales, slasher movies and B-movie horror. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. I mean, it's it's one of those games that we're not going to talk much um, setting and background here because it doesn't really have one. It's whatever you sort of put into it. So it's ideal for one shots. Um, and, you know, any any horror film, you can kind of take it and run with it. It is very much a mechanical engine rather than a game with setting. Yeah, but there is no setting in it. It is just purely mechanics. And as we'll discuss when we go through the book, there's other stuff in there about how to emulate certain genres of horror and different tools the GM can use to evoke fear. But on the whole, it's mechanics. But it's a lot more than just a generic rule set because I think the the core of what makes it good, as we'll come to when we discuss um, some of the mechanics, is this kind of overarching mechanic of, of the, the kind of pacing mechanic that it has in it that drives it mm-hmm. uh, towards a, a climax um, and drives the characters. Well, and you'll realise why player characters in this game are not called investigators or player characters or heroes. They're called... Victims. Yep. Or as, uh, as you refer to uh, that particular mechanic, the one Scott always bones players with every <laughs> fucking time <laughs> that game there's a reason why dead of night is one of my favorite games it's, yeah it's it's rare that a game gives the gm mechanical license to fuck over the players as much as dead of night can <laughs> and yes you use it to optimal advantage every time but- But we've described Dead of Night as being very rules-light and very simple. And that's true, but the mechanics in it are very, very focused on emulating the things that happen in horror movies. And a whole variety of horror movies. And, yeah, we'll try to explore, as we discuss the individual mechanics, what makes them so perfect for that horror movie experience. It's possible that some of you out there have never heard of Dead of Night before. It's quite a popular game, I think, in the UK, particularly conventions. Mm. Um, I see an awful lot of Dead of Night still being played at conventions 10 years after the first edition came out, or 11 years now. But I don't think it's that well known in the US, for example. I, I know it got a little bit of play at Gen Con, you know, perhaps about 10 years ago when it first came out. But I don't think a lot of people in the US play it. I think it came out before the big wave of indie games, or at least it was one of the, the early ones of those. So it, was, it came out in 2005. Um, as a small format book, uh, not much bigger than the, the palm of your hand, you know, it, it didn't look like a role-playing game book. It was smaller than a novel. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, in fact, I think that's partly where part of its charm comes from. That because it is so small, it will fit in your average pocket, trouser mm. pocket, suit pocket, whatever, that it is very much a pick-up-and-play game. If you were going backpacking and camping, this is something you could take to play by the fire. Yeah, exactly. It's it's something that, particularly thinking of the convention scene, my instances where I've played it, it's very much, 
I've got a game of Dead of Night that I can play. And it's literally just whip it out the pocket and sit, sit down and start playing. That there's very... Um, in some instances, you can do it zero prep. In fact, I think Scott's the expert on zero prep. Yeah, I actually wrote the section on zero prep games in the second edition. And there you go. So today there's been two editions. Yeah. The first edition, which is the small format one, and the second edition, which came out in 2010. It seems yeah. much more recent than that, but apparently 2010, uh, which is a more sort of standard uh, yeah, format. Di- digest size. Digest size, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to say somewhere around A5, but yeah, Digest is the right one. And that's the second edition has brought in a number of other writers um, and some fantastic artwork as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 design, the design of the first book, I mean, the, the first edition was, was very, very eye-catching because of the size of it, and it's got quite a nice cover on it uh, with a, a werewolf in a leather jacket. And, yeah, it's it's... A kind of quirky, interesting book to look at, but it doesn't necessarily scream of professionalism in the layout. Uh, the, the font choice is eccentric, and I mean, the artwork is, I mean, it's good, but it's you know, it's it's not a patch on what came after. Mm-hmm. Because with the second edition, Andrew Kenrick, who wrote the game, uh, brought Paul Bourne in to do the layout and the artwork, and dear God, did Paul go to town with this? I, I, I've mentioned on other podcasts what a huge fan I am of Paul's work, and this. I think is still my favourite of everything uh, he's worked on. I what he did with it. I mean, not only you know has it got his his kind of classic, uh, kind of slightly grungy layout. Not only has it got lots of interesting spot illustrations, but he put a whole bunch of fake movie posters in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he invented all these non-existent horror films and uh, did you know, full posters with cast lists and directors and, and taglines. And they look at least as good, if not better, than most of the professional horror movie posters that you'll see. Uh, and oh, they're just a delight. I remember that when it first came out, I think um, at the con- various conventions, um, was it Andrew that was giving away postcards yes. of the different uh, posters? I've still got a few of those. And yeah, they, they are just really fun, really fun pieces of work. But the second edition was expanded an awful lot, not just in terms of size and the layout, uh, but in terms of the content. I mean, Andrew kept the, the same basic uh, rules mechanics in there, but then expanded it with a whole load more genre advice, different types of horror, uh, a whole bunch of additional scenarios, uh, as I mentioned before, essays with GM tips. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, he got a whole bunch of people he knew to write bits, uh, James Mullen, Joe Murphy, uh, Mark Latham and, and me. It's a bit of a shame that since 2010 there haven't really been that much new material for the. Or there hasn't been that much new material for the game. That there's been a few extra scenarios. Yeah, I Andrew did a few PDF scenarios back in 2005 and 2006 when the first edition came out. Uh, he, you can still get them on Drive Through RPG, I think. Uh, there's Coyote Creek, Night of the Santa Claus, and they came from the mall, uh, which are yeah, fun, very much in the mode of the B movie, cheesy, silly mode of Dead of Night. Uh, and yeah, they're, they're fun scenarios. And then in 2010, James Mullen released a couple uh, on the back of the second edition coming out. And he did uh, one uh, which was inspired by uh, Stephen King's The Mist, uh, which I've seen him do as a sort of semi larp at conventions with, with fairly large numbers of players. And yeah, that, that one just works beautifully. 
and he did another one which I've, I've played uh, called Ghost Hunt DVD Extras, uh, which is his take on a, a sort of reality ghost hunting TV show. And yeah, that one's great fun. Um, I think they're available on on James's website, uh, Groundhoggeth. Um, if if I actually get myself organised when writing up the show notes, I'll put a link in there. And now we have a look at the mechanics of Dead of Night. In this section, we're just going to focus on the rules in the second edition, the more recent edition, uh, as there are there are a few changes from the first. One of the nice things about the game is how quick you can create a character. It is a game where you can just sit down, the GM can pull the game out of his bag and say, let's play Dead of Night, and within you know five minutes you've got characters. And on the back of a postcard. <laughs> really small. <laughs> yeah. This, this, one of the major things I love about this game is that it is character creation that I find can be such a pain in the neck. Um, from the 17-hour horror that we had when we were playtesting the Dresden Files, <laughs> this is heaven! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, when I do character sheets for conventions, I use a, a document that, that has got pretty well the entirety of the game mechanics on the back of the character sheet as well. So, you know, basically everything the players need to know during play is there on the back of the sheet, So they, uh, just for easy reference. Mm-hmm. And there aren't too many games you can do that with. No, no. So for a victim, as player characters are, are called... Uh, you, you have a concept, a kind of a, an archetype that you, you kind of come up with. You have four pairs of attributes and potentially specialisations, but they're kind of a, an add-on. You, your main mechanics are your four pairs of attributes. Yeah. And you also have what's referred to as a bad habit, which we'll, we'll explain in a few moments. So you mentioned the concept, and the concept is basically you know, a, a very high-level description of what the character is. And this is something that you'll generally tool for what the, uh, the type of scenario is. So if you were playing, uh, say, a slasher movie or something like that, then um, you could almost go with the, the classic archetypes from a Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that? The jock, the nerd, the good girl? The joker uh, or clown. Yeah. Um, Personally, I like the guys sitting behind the desk, the office workers. Um. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's that kind of archetype. So I, if you were playing something maybe inspired by the Supernatural uh, TV series, it could be something like you know, Hard-Bitten Monster Hunter or you know, uh, Fresh-Faced Newbie Caught Up in the Horror or something like that. It's, it's whatever summarises that character neatly and crystallises it in your mind. Yeah, it's a very short, sharp, very descriptive sentence. The four pairs of attributes uh, we have in order, identify, stroke, obscure, spot hidden, stroke, stealth, (laughs) persuade and dissuade, persuade, stroke, intimidate, (laughs) (laughs) pursue, escape, run like hell, (laughs) and still run like hell, (laughs) it's just decks and decks, (laughs) and assault, stroke, protect, fighting, stroke, dodge. But the beauty of these is that... you have to kind of be able to twist them into just about every situation. So one of the examples in the book for persuade and dissuade is obviously that's for social interaction, but also if you were trying to get a car started, if you were trying to hotwire a car, you might use persuade to actually persuade the engine to start or dissuade, you know, for the opposite to sort of uh, to, to um, sabotage a piece of machinery to stop it working. You, you could also argue that it's escape as well, or pursue if you're trying to follow someone with the car. 
if well, you want to wrap it, it in in one scene. Yeah, mm. I mean, that's when it comes to the actual driving and running around. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, if you were trying to sabotage something, for example, that's very much a dissuade role. Mm-hmm. I just try to lump everything in as fewer roles as I can. <laughs> so most actions, well, all actions, I think, can be, you know, you can end up defaulting to one of those eight attributes. And the fact that they come in pairs is important because you have 10 points to share out among each pair. So if you set your identify at seven, your obscure is at three. So, for example, if you wanted to have a very combat-averse character, someone who spent all their time cowering and hiding... Me! <laughs> then, you know, an assault of two might be appropriate and then eight in protect. And, you know, that, that, that's your, you know, get-out-of-jail-free card or whatever. I think you've described every Dead of Night character I've rolled up. <laughs> and as we sort of hinted there, higher values are better than lower ones. And personally, what I really like about these attribute pairs is they do neatly sum up the kinds of things that characters do in most classic horror movies. Hmm. Then we have specialisations. Specialisations are a bolt-on to one of those pairs of attributes. So going back to our archetype or concept of hard-bitten monster hunter, that person might choose to have vampire slayer as a specialisation. This can really be anything, you know, any uh, thing you want. Yeah, it's not a pick list. And, you know, presumably you'd pin that onto assault and protect. Mechanically, the specialisation is very easy to add in. You just drop your attributes by a couple of points and you boost um, the specialisation by a couple of points. It, it, it works to complement the, the, that pair of attributes. Well, we move on to the last bit that defines these characters, uh, which is the bad habit. And this is a, a new mechanic in second edition that James Mullen threw in. It's something that he'd done as a house rule in a number of convention games that he ran. And uh, Andrew Kendrick liked it so much that he just made it part of the game. It's almost playing up to the stereotypical things that characters do in horror films that put them in a bad situation. Yeah. Like, hey, let's go and have sex in the back alley. Hey, let me go out on my own and have a cigarette in the, in the dark woods. Um, hey, let me get out the car and wander around after I've broken down. It's the yeah. thing that when you're watching the film, you're like, why is he doing that? Why are you going in there on your own? You're, are you mad? Yeah, and there are more general versions of this called cliches, which we'll come to later in the game. But they, this is something, a particular shtick just for your character. So if you play your bad habit, um, you get you get a, 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 a point, don't you? Yeah, a survival point. A survival point, um, yeah. And we'll explain what a survival point is, in fact, almost immediately, I think. Yeah, like gold dust if you're in a Scott game. <laughs> <laughs> we'll explain all about survival points in a moment. But first of all, let's take a look at tasks and conflicts. Again, very simple. You pick up 2d10, roll them, and add your attribute or specialization. Um, so you're rolling 2d10 and adding one number to it. And you've got a target number of 15. Which in theory means that most of the time you should hit it because you're rolling an average on two dice to get to, uh, potentially 10 and then add an average rating of your skill of 5. That never works for me! Why <laughs> it doesn't? It doesn't! Because it's you and dice, Matt. It's you and dice. <laughs> But that target number can change, right, Scott? Yeah, it only changes if you're in conflict with another character. So if you're okay. if you're in conflict with, uh, say, another victim or with a monster or an NPC, if they're statted up and they have their own attribute pairs, you look at what the opposing attribute is. So, for example, you know, let, let's say that... Um, let's say mine and your character get into a fight, Scott. I mean, like that would ever happen. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> what the odds. And I've got an assault of eight... And I've got a protector four. So I'm rolling 2d10 and adding eight. And trying to get 14. Yeah. 
this is why I go for defence eight. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. And again, if you can oppose it with a specialisation, so say I had uh, a specialisation of something like Aikido, uh, as, as, as a def- uh, or runaway screaming ten, <laughs> <laughs> then yeah, say, say I had that at ten, then your target would be twenty. Mm. Dodging bullets, ten. <laughs> <laughs> Now, certain types of roles in this are special roles. We'll define a bit more about how to customise uh, Dead of Night for particular types of games in a moment. But for the time being, let, let's just say that uh, so you make certain types of roles in the game special, what are referred to as risky roles. In, in, in a fairly straight average horror movie, a slasher movie, for example, that would probably be fights or running away. When is when are other what are other examples of risky roles then, Scott? Because obviously, getting in a fight with the, the the killer is is risky, and you risk you know damage. Well, it, it depends on the game and what you've got survival points uh, defined as, and this is something we'll explain more in a few moments. But let's say you were playing a game of pure Lovecraftian horror where physical violence wasn't necessarily an issue. You might define survival points as sanity. So uh, a um, a risky role could be anything where uh, you risk witnessing uh, something horrible or learning some abominable secret. Reading an Necronomicon? Exactly. Okay. Um, or you could be doing something along the lines of the, uh, the Exorcist and defining survival points as religious faith. And so a risky role could be anything where you're, you're in verbal combat with a demon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could represent willpower, it could represent anything, anything you want, really, that has yeah. a almost tangible, monitorable quality. And that's where, if you lose the, the conflict role there... You lose a survival point. You lose a survival point. And if your opponent loses, he or she loses a survival point. And this is the way that you, you wear monsters down in the game, uh, and it's also the way your character gets worn down, or, or one of the ways your character gets worn down. One of the, one of the really nice things in Dead of Night... Uh, for me, just because it's so simple, is the initiative system which ties into all this, uh, which is basically players take action or the characters take action when the player says so. So instead of um, you know, right, a fight's broken out. You know, let's let's work out the initiative order. It's all right. Yeah, you know, I'm going to punch the monster in the face. All right, you roll because you just spoke up there. The only limitation is the same player doesn't get to act twice in a row. You see, that's actually the thing I hate most about the game. Because I found I found this that if you have a quiet player like myself, I try to be fairly polite at the table. I try to take everyone have their turn rather than just jump in and speak. If you've got a fairly domineering player, that means they're always going first. They could potentially take one action, wait, and then another action, wait, then another action. If you've got people that are very quiet, they suddenly get to do nothing. But that's that's my only bugbear with the game. I, it depends mm. how you handle it. I um, certainly. When I'm GMing Dead of Night, I'm not shy about prompting the quiet players. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to force them into action if they don't want to do something. But if I see someone getting skipped over, you know, I, I will just point, point to them at some stage and say, right, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, that's a good I'm, way to compensate. You're just saying, as it's written, that's the one thing I don't like. Yeah. And players should really be making most of the roles in this. The GM can roll, but um, because of the way the attributes work, you know, if, if say, you know, I'm getting a monster to attack your character, sure, I can roll an assault roll, or I can just tell you to roll protect. Hmm. And it, I think that works better, that it is you put the emphasis back on the player. Yeah, it makes it feel more like their fault when the dice fail them. <laughs> 
Yeah, all all the GM really needs, as as we'll get to when we talk about uh, tension, is a large D twenty that sits ominously in front of the GM that occasionally oh. just clicks. Well, we'll go into that in excruciating detail <laughs> soon. Oh yeah. <laughs> then we come to survival points. These are the kind of the the gearing mechanism of the game. So they can rec- well, they certainly represent a kind of a plot immunity. So if you, even if you're up against the big bad early on, it can't kill you. You start off with five survival points. So these represent, if you like, hit points, fate points, all rolled into one. If you lose a conflict, you just lose one point at a time. Yeah. Um, so you know, in the first, you know, early on in the game, get into whatever conflict you like. You're not going to die immediately. Um, but as those go, as they get eroded away over the course of the game, you become more and more vulnerable. And once they've all gone, then, you know, you're open to being whatever, they, depending on what they represent, you're open to, you know, permanent insanity, um, death or whatever those points represent in your in your game. Yeah, and as we mentioned earlier, they can represent all sorts of things. For example, in one of the scenarios in the book, uh, James Mullins' called Fusion Scenario, they uh, get perverted into this sort of corruption mechanic uh, whereby um, your, your character gradually get instead of losing survival points, they get replaced with a different colour survival point. And this represents your character gradually turning into a zombie as it goes on. But as I mentioned earlier, it can mean sanity, it can mean physical health, it can mean religious faith. And if you were doing something along the lines of Vampire the Masquerade, it could mean humanity. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's part of your job as either as the GM, if you're setting up a particular scenario, or as the group, um, if you're doing this as a more collaborative thing, to decide what that means before play starts. <laughs> You know what I found that would always be a lot of fun to use for survival points? Not what you use survival points for, but what to use for survival points. M&M's. <laughs> Great little thing. Oh, you lost a survival point. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that's a really good point. I, I'm a big fan of using tokens at the table to represent survival points. Because, I mean... For a start, for me as a GM, it's a really easy way of me looking around the table and seeing how healthy all the characters are without having to look at the character sheets. If they've got a pile of glass beads in front of them and one person's got eight and another person's got one, then, yeah, I know one person's on the ropes. And and also, there is something, I think, satisfying and tension-building about the act of physically taking something away from the characters every time they get into trouble, or rewarding them you know, if they do something clever. Uh, again, we'll get to this in a moment. But if they do something that, that earns them a survival point, there's something satisfying about physically putting that in front of the player. Definitely, yeah, yeah. And as you just referred to, there is the mechanic whereby the player can spend a survival point to get some kind of in-game bonus. Uh, you know, have we got um, a, a jack in the boot? Have we got connection on my phone? Have I got signal on my phone? <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Uh, the last Dead of Night game that I played with Matt Nixon running it, I think I burnt through more survival points saying, there's an app for that. Click. <laughs> <laughs> There's all sorts of things you can use survival points for. I mean, there's that, there's surviving risky rolls, which we've covered. There's uh, one of the most commonly used one is for a re-roll. So let's say that you know, you're in a really tense mm. situation, you're going to lose a survival point anyway because it's a risky roll. You can say to the GM, right, yeah, I'm, I'm going to actually spend a survival point on a re-roll. And then if you pass that, I mean, sure, you've lost a survival point, but so is your enemy. Of course, if you fail it, you've just lost two survival points in a row. There's also quite a handy one where you can spend the 
uh, the point to reverse the numbers on your sheet. So let's say in that example that, as with all characters that I roll up in the game, it has two assault and eight protect. No, say there's that one time I really do want to punch that sod in the face. Spend a survival point, I've got eight assault. <laughs> yes, and that lasts for the entire scene. Yes. <laughs> you can also uh, hog the spotlight. So what I said before about players not being able to act twice in a row, uh, if you spend a survival point, you can actually interrupt someone else's action and just sort of say, well, I, no, no, sorry, I'm jumping in again here, survival point, spend, bang, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. You can also spend a survival point to negate another player's survival point spend. So you could have two players who absolutely hate each other or who have characters who hate each other mm-hmm. just getting to this bidding war with survival points over a single roll. I have seen this happen oh, before, yeah. and it's mm-hmm. glorious. You don't need monsters to kill them when that happens. <laughs> this is why I say you'd be glad with M&Ms. <laughs> just munch your way through your life. <laughs> There's quite a few ways you can gain survival points as well, isn't there? We've covered a couple of them already in the form of bad habits. So every time your bad habit inconveniences the character. I mean, this isn't just, say, you've got a character whose bad habit is smoking. Is you, you can't just turn to the GM and say, right, I'm lighting up a cigarette, survival point, please. But if it's, you know, I'm going outside for a cigarette, you know, it, it, it's dark outside, I know there's vampires around, but they won't let me smoke in here, <laughs> then, yeah, that's a survival point. Yeah. Or, the, or the classic... Hey, we could split up and cover more ground that way. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of bleeding into cliches. So cliches are the more general horror movie things. So that's a classic there. Anyone who speaks those words during a game automatically gets a survival point from me. <laughs> you know, the other classic one is, yes, oh, all, all the lights have gone out. It's all right. I'll go down to the cellar alone and check the fuse box. <laughs> it's always in the cellar. Why is it in the cellar? <laughs> because it's a horror movie. Uh, Suddenly every house grows a cellar? If that was over here, that would be a very different (laughs) different story. (laughs) My personal favourite when it comes to gaining survival points, similar to rolling a double, if you roll a natural 13 on the dice. (laughs) Yes. Which which is also a good segue into if you roll a natural 13, tension goes up by one. It does. And uh, a monster of the GM's choice gets a survival point. The player doesn't, but the monsters get stronger. So when your character is out of survival points, their plot immunity is gone. The next time they fail a risky roll, they are dead. Dead, dead, dead. <laughs> Sounds almost like the bad stuff on a munchkin card. <laughs> you are dead. Do not pass go. Do not collect £200. <laughs> and every time someone loses or spends a survival point, tension goes up by one. As people spend their survival points, the GM keeps those in front of them, right? Well, it depends how you track them. Now, personally, I mean, Matt mentioned this a few minutes ago. My personal favourite way of tracking tension, and we'll explain what tension is in a moment, but my personal favourite way of tracking it is I've got a big D20. A huge one, a fist-sized one. Yep, which I keep (laughs) at the table. And tension is a number that varies between 1 and 15. So I just turn the D20 over and I I keep the top number at whatever the current tension level is. So if I spe- so if I'm the first person to spend or uh, lose a survival point, you turn that big D20 from 15 to 16? No. So um, you turn up to 1. No. It depends where it starts. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll explain this. So um, the starting value for tension depends on the type of game you're playing. Uh, so if you're playing something that's a you know, a fairly gentle start to the horror movie, start the tension starts generally around three. If you're playing something that's that's pretty nasty, it could be five. 
So this tension goes up, as I said, every time someone spends a survival point or loses a survival point. And it, like the survival points, this is kind of a pacing mechanism, except this is a resource for the GM. So as the tension goes up, um, a few things happen. The GM gets more licensed to describe nasty stuff in the game. So by the time tension maxes out at 15, you should be, you know, th- th- that's like the, the final act of a slasher movie. People yeah, are running for the their lives. Yeah. yeah. Well, there are milestones along the way to get there, again, depending on what type of genre you're playing, yeah. that it will alter the GMs the way they describe things or yeah. how the atmosphere of the game becomes at that point. Like, So sometimes you might have a milestone at five points, then a milestone at ten points, and then full-on, full-auto horror at 15. Yeah. Or they might vary up until that point. One of my favourite tricks is to actually have set events that come up at different milestones, usually 5, 10 and 15. And I will warn the players at the start of the game, in general terms, the kinds of badness that is coming their way when that happens. And so, you know, I'll I'll say, you know, something bad is going to happen when tension hits 5. Something really bad is going to happen when it hits 10. Something catastrophic is going to happen when it hits 15. And every time tension goes up, I will theatrically reach into the middle of the table, get that D20, turn it over and slam it down just to get everyone's attention. And, yeah, I, as people see it ratcheting up and, and, you know, particularly when it hits those milestones, it has a palpable effect on the game. So that, that mechanic works really well hand-in-hand because hand, I talked about the, the way your survival points drop and you're heading towards, you know, your own mortality as, as the player character. Well, not necessarily death, but, you know, as we discussed. But in hand-in-hand in hand with that, you've got the tension, which is going up as a sort of a, a group threat. Yes, but that tension can also go down because the GM can spend tension uh, on various things. Now, as, as Matt mentioned earlier, uh, one of the main uses for it is altering the result of dice rolls. Oh, yes. So um, that is usually uh, the, the GM knocking the result of a dice roll down. Um, so let's say uh, you're about to score a, a killing blow against the big bad, and I think it would be interesting if the monster got away. Um, I can then, you know, you, you, your target number is a 15, you roll a 17. Yay! Yeah, you know, good success there. Th- that wouldn't be me rolling the dice, though. that's far too high. <laughs> I can then spend three points of tension to, to change that and knock it down to a 14. So that means you fail, I get a survival point off you, tension goes up to 15. Uh, Yay! Uh, your tension goes up by one, brother. <laughs> you don't spend all three points, yeah. <laughs> And the other thing you can spend it on is activating specialisations for monsters. All right, we'll talk about monsters in a moment, but like player characters or victims, monsters have got specialisations, but their specialisations are hmm, special. Uh, they can, you know, they, they can do all sorts of really nasty, cruel stuff. And um, the uh, the difference is that, you know, w- when a victim uses a specialisation, that's just part of a normal role. When a monster does it, it has to spend tension in order to power it. Yeah, the, the one I always remember, because there is a list of examples in there, not an, an exhaustive list, um, but the one that always springs to mind for me is the kind of Jason Voorhees um, ability of, oh, he's done, where did he go? Yeah, and then oh, he's back again. Hey, <laughs> so those those monster moves, so they kind of 
defined individually defined they're not a kind of just like a like the character specializations where they kind of mean whatever you want them to mean no they they do have specific mechanical phases there's a, about 15 of them defined in the game okay and you know each one has got a tension point to activate it some of the example ones uh, there's deadly uh so that means that the you know the, the monster does more damage when it's attacked so it's like two uh, survival points they lose rather than one isn't exactly. it exactly yeah. Or you could have something like No Escape, uh, which is sort of that Jason Voorhees one you were talking about. They just keep uh, coming and yeah. coming. <laughs> yes, no matter where you run to, you know, you run off to your your cabin, uh, you, you you bolt the door, uh, you're there, kind of breathing heavily, trying to get your breath back, and you hear a noise from behind you. Even though they were only walking exactly. and you were running, like sprinting mm-hmm. for ten minutes, yeah. Although we do know that that is possible after having watched Behind the Mask. Indeed. <laughs> now there's a heart back to an earlier episode though. we've done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, a, and a similar one there is sequel. So uh, that's basically, <laughs> if, if you kill the creature, um, you can spend uh, some tension to raise it from the dead at one survival point. <laughs> Just to wrap up the discussion of monsters... Dead of Night handles monsters very well. Monsters are defined in, in terms of archetypes, and there's a, 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 several archetypes with, defined within the book. So, you know, these are things like the Unstoppable Killer, so there's the old Jason Voorhees example, mm-hmm. uh, Vengeful Dead, I mean, that can be ghosts, zombies, anything like that. The Girl uh, from the Ring. Uh, yes, yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, the Formless Horror, so, you know, there's something like The Blob. Or the thing from beyond—that's your your Lovecraftian, unspeakable, un, uh, indescribable thing from beyond time and space. Uh, and each one of these archetypes has got examples in the book and has got uh, specialisations tied in with it and guidance on how to play it. And and basically, uh, you you customise each one of those for what what you want within the game. Or alternatively, you can come up with something just completely different. And the other thing that defines a monster is each one has to have at least one vulnerability. So this is something like silver bullets for werewolves or sunlight or crosses for vampires. Uh, this is something that, that they are vulnerable to and will do them extra damage when they're exposed to it. So if they fail a, ris- a risky role involving this, they take an extra survival points damage. GM Tools in Dead of Night one of the cool things about Dead of Night's second edition to me is the fact that around half the book is filled up with guidance to the GM. And this is... It's broken into a few different chapters. So um, part of it is, for example, uh, explanations of how you can emulate different genres of horror. Uh, Part of it is different essays about uh, aspects of GMing and uh, GMing horror games in particular, about how to scare your players, about how to run games with very little preparation, and about how to adapt Dead of Night itself. Yeah, not all of these are just tied to Dead of Night either, that you can use them in any other game, or any exactly. other horror game particularly. So it's support material, and that is like, it's, it's like gold dust, really. It's wonderful. So there's some good GMing advice in there. But also, I mean, you talked about the different styles of horror... Uh, there are some different mechanical settings for some of those as well, aren't there? For some of the different genres so yeah. where you start off your um, your tension setting and, and so on. And and ideas for what tension and survival points can mean in the game. Yeah. Uh, so it sort of sets yeah. the flavours 
um, of, of the game mechanically. Yes. Yeah. So, so that that aspect of it is very tied to Dead of Night, but the rest of it is is general GM advice for horror games. So, even if you're not running Dead of Night, you can probably get quite a lot out of that section. You know, if you wanted ideas about how to run, you know, for example, psychological horror or body horror, black comedy, ghost stories, you just go to the appropriate section in there, and and you know, uh, lift the different bits of advice that, that the book offers. And now we talk about our experiences with Dead of Night. As I mentioned before, Dead of Night is designed specifically for one-shots, but it can be used for uh, campaign play. And I did play in a very rare campaign of it with James Mullen back at the Milton Keynes role-playing club oh, some five, six years ago. And James used a sort of zombie apocalypse as the premise for it. Uh, this was before uh, the, the Walking Dead really kicked off. Um, so it, it, it was zombies were still a fairly big thing at the time, but it, they perhaps weren't quite as overplayed as they are now. And it still felt like a fairly fresh and interesting thing to do. And, yeah, this campaign was really interesting. Uh, James made a few adjustments to the rules, or at least tried a few at various stages, to make it a better fit for campaign play. He put in a new mechanic called baggage, and to be honest, I can't really remember exactly how it worked. But it was sort of a, I think, a sort of flashback mechanic where you could explain how your character um, had been affected by a previous experience or shaped by it, and get a survival point out of that that you could then use in the game. Yeah, I've played Dead of Night quite a few times at conventions, primarily with Matt Nixon, who has a great way of kind of improvising a a Dead of Night game using another game called Grave Robbers from Outer Space, which is a card game of kind of B-movie horror, as the title suggests. And each card has different elements on it. So he deals them out. So everybody gets like a card with a character on it. Everybody gets a card with some items or artifacts or and locations and so on. And, uh, and then he gets people to choose, you know, their preferred character, some preferred artifacts, some preferred locations and, and so on, which become elements of the story. And people then give him back the cards and he goes away and writes a scenario based on that but when i say writes a scenario comes up with a basic plot in the space of 10 minutes while everybody else goes and gets a drink the other cool thing about these cards is that at the bottom of each card they've got a single word on them um such as grave and robbers and things like that which can then be strung together to form a title for the game or about you know four or five of them could be strung together to form a title for the game uh, he then comes back and presents a, a, a kind of a, a fairly improvised scenario based upon what these cards have sort of indicated. And, you know, it plays out really well. But he is a GM who's very good at kind of improvising. And he's a GM who's very good at kind of the B-movie schlock horror kind of tropes. You know, he's kind of, um, you know, marinated in that stuff. <laughs> now, one thing that really did improve this improvised game of Dead of Night, was there's a supplement for Grave Robbers from Outer Space. And in one session, Robin and I got Matt a copy of Bell-Bottomed Badasses. <laughs> That's the a terrifying ni- piece of alliteration right there. <laughs> it sure is. The 1970s action cinema supplement, which, uh, you know, that w- and that was great. <laughs> yeah, you can't go wrong with that. Over to you, Matt. 
You see, my uh, memory of Dead of Night that comes when I've played it uh, comes from a game that Scott ran, um, taking the cult universe and then using the Dead of Night rules. The thing that that eased up on the horror of not having to deal with the original game's rule set, <laughs> and it just made it a lot more flowing and um, flowing game. But also being able to use survival points as a lictor at the end of the game. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, being able to use survival points to become a lictor. That too, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I seem to remember you actually spent two points on the specialisation lictor. I think I did from memory, yeah. <laughs> what is a lictor? <laughs> the jailers keeping humanity in their prison. Okay. How <laughs> well, much better would it have been if it had been wearing bell bottoms, though? <laughs> <laughs> See the mashup there? Oh, the horror. <laughs> Another thing I've done for a number of convention games is hack around the rules of Dead of Night to support other genres. So... Particularly um, urban fantasy and... Urban fantasy, Scott? Did it turn into horror, though? Uh, one of them didn't. One of them... Really? Uh, in fact, thinking about it, neither of them really oh, did. Oh, OK. One of the ones that I did was about fairies in modern-day London. Uh, I mean, these are classical British uh, fairy legends. And and so yeah, it was the idea that there was this sort of cold war between the Seely and the Unseely courts, uh, both of whom were living in the shadows of human society. And uh, it was set around the time the, their cold war went hot. And cold Iron went... Um, hot Iron War. Well, yeah, <laughs> the, the title of the game was Cold Iron War. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, the the characters were uh, almost all uh, members of the Seely Court who were on the run, having been largely wiped out and just fighting for their continued existence. And, yeah, that that one went very, very well. And, no, it wasn't horror. I mean, there were a few dark elements to it. God says this, but I bet everybody (laughs) had nightmares afterwards. (laughs) Because the Unseely Court, they're not scary. Yeah, okay, there might have been a few horrific elements, but... (laughs) (laughs) No, just dark fantasy. Yeah. I want to see a game where Scott doesn't it isn't actually you know a horror game. Well, the other one that I did was based on Greek myths. Uh, like there's nothing horrific there either. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see. Convinced. I want to see you run a game of Toon again. Yeah. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Oh God, no, no, I wasn't being serious about that. I remember Toon has been the longest half hour of my life. I don't want to go through that again. <laughs> And nobody's ever seen a scary cartoon, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I also hacked it around a bit to uh, a sort of low-powered superhero game. Well, when I say superhero, it wasn't really superhero. It was uh, sort of teenagers with powers in the 1970s in, in London uh, with a, a sort of punk aesthetic to it. Oh, that sounds uh, fun. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, it sort of had elements of John Wyndham uh, running through it, you know, particularly the chrysalids. And, yeah, 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 that one, a few times I ran it, it did get quite fucked up, but I blame the players for that. Yeah, it's always the players with you, Scott. I was just thinking you had Paul when you mentioned it was the 70s, so you could see the the sparkle in his eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I may dig that one out again then and try running it for you. Oh, that's a setting in itself, yeah. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. And to wrap up, what do we make of Dead of Night? Well, what do you two think has made Dead of Night such a success on the British convention circuit? 
I think that it's designed specifically for one-shots and that it's the convention is typified by running one-shots and that horror seems to appeal to a very wide audience these days. That it's fast, it's fun, it's rules-light, you don't have to spend half an hour explaining how the thing works. Character gen takes three or four seconds. It's just a really quick, fast-paced and quite visceral game. Yeah. And one of the big selling points for me as a GM is the fact that it will cater to almost any horror idea I have with minimal preparation. Uh, It's mostly just a matter of setting what survival points and tension mean uh, and then just fleshing out the premise a little bit. Uh, Perhaps, you know, coming up with a couple of special abilities for a monster. And that's pretty much it. Uh, if, If I've got a strong idea in mind, I can prepare a Dead of Night scenario in minutes. Uh, which makes it very easy for improvisational play. One question that occurred to me as well, relating to Dead of Night, is it's not a traditionally very well-supported game, in that you know, when, when you think about popular games, you tend to think of lots of supplements coming out. Now, we've discussed the fact that there have been a few scenarios uh, released for Dead of Night. There's the two James Mullen did, and there's the three Andrew Kenrick did about ten years ago. But apart from that, I don't think, apart from the, the two editions of the core book, that anything else has ever been published for it. I, and do you, do you think that that puts people off, or, or what? I think what it does is serve to lower it in people's consciousness because I think there's a a bit like music in that there's there's always new stuff coming out and that's kind of driven to the, the to, to people's attention. So when a game is you know ten years old, if there if there's still you know if there's not still stuff coming out for it and it doesn't really have a massive following, it kind of it becomes almost forgotten. I can see where you're coming from with that because it's it suffers a bit the same for Heaven and Earth, another favourite game of mine. That that had its third edition release, one source book, and then disappeared off the face of the earth. Or Edge of Midnight, similar thing. Had maybe had two or three supplements and then the games died. It does seem that to keep him the forefront of especially game stores and so on, that there has to be some new product keeps coming out. That you can't just have the copy of the rule book sat on the shelf and a constant stream of sales coming in from it. It seems to have, um, at least in a business sense, it would have to have something to keep revitalising it. But that said, the fact that it still remains so popular that it hasn't had that impetus says a lot for the quality of the one book they have, or the, the second Ed book that has been released. So it's a swings and roundabouts. I mean, I, I think there's an argument here to go back and look at some of these you know, what we might call older games, you know, the ones that aren't current now, because everybody's kind of looking at, you know, Kickstarter and what's popular now and being discussed. And every month, every week, there's there's more stuff coming out that fills a similar niche, you know, horror games, fantasy games, sci-fi games, whatever. Um, but, you know, who's going back and saying, oh, let's play My Life with Master or, you know, Dogs in the Vineyard is probably a bit more popular, but Dead of Night, you know, these games, unless you sort of think, oh, yeah, I mean, if you've played it already, it's in your repertoire. But if you haven't, what's making you sort of think, oh, let's go back and visit that game when there's all these new ones coming out? In fact, it's interesting, out of the three that that you just mentioned there, I think the only one that you really could publish supplements for is Dead of Night. And the other two are pretty well self-contained. Sure, with uh, with Dogs in the Vineyard, you do need to come up with towns, but the book guides you through all that. Uh, With My Life with Master... You can change the premise of it and uh, change what the master's about, but again, the book walks you through all that. You don't need a supplement to tell you how. With Dead of Night, yeah, I I think there probably is scope for 
you know, certainly scenarios. Um, you know, I talked about hacking it a bit before. I think putting out hacks that support other genres might work quite well. But for Apocalypse World, so why not this? Yeah. A book of hacks and a book of, um, you know, the, a book of hacks and uh, scenarios would be great. I mean, whether there's the market for it, support it, I don't know. But then, you know, that's true for, for lots of games. I mean, it tends to be the case that a core book sells a lot more than the supplements that come out for it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'd be I'd welcome one for Dead of Night. And I think one of the things that would probably help with publishing Dead of Night scenarios is the fact that it's so system light, and you don't need to put much in the way of mechanics in the scenario, that they effectively almost become systemless scenarios that you could run with any game. You know what you could run it with? The Horror from the Shed. Available now. Well, not available now. The one that came out in our fanzine, Blasphemous Tome. Oh, yeah. That, um, would, that, that would systemless. Fit, that would fit perfectly with Dead of Night. Yeah. Hmm. Also, I'd like it as it's a nice, easy, one-shot game. That pretty much sums it up in a nutshell. Yeah, I think the fact it's got that mechanic whereby your character can't be taken out in the early scenes, but is slowly worn down, and it's kind of got that whole pacing mechanic, I think, you know, that it's uh, a brilliantly conceived idea. And now it's time for... Ask Jackson. Well, in case this is the first time you've heard this segment, we are, of course, conduits to the consciousness that, that lies beyond, that once was Jackson Elias. Spoiler alert! <laughs> Look... Is Jackson and will be Jackson again. <laughs> I, he, this was back in the 1930s. You, you, you wouldn't expect him to still be around, would you? It's not a spoiler. People die. <sighs> Yeah, you never know. <laughs> but yes, Jackson, having passed beyond this mortal veil, knows the answers to all. So our listeners do, every now and then, send us questions via Google+, via Facebook, via email, um, or just beamed through the ether directly into our dreams. And our question this week comes from listener Daniel Carroll, or at least Daniel has in turn channeled the the spirit of someone from beyond, a former circus strongman by the name of Simon Strong. Dear Jackson, I regret it's been too long, old friend, but I'm in need of your sage advice. Since retiring as a circus strongman, I found the tedium of daily life softening both my body and mind, and long for the excitement of days gone by. I've noticed one of those creatures skulking around the edge of my property again recently. If I recall, you called them Dark Young. This one's a runt of a thing, at least compared to the others, and I've been toying with the idea of wrestling with it, just for a bit of sport. What do you think? You know more about these things than I do. Is it worth a shot, or has the monotony driven me mad? Sincerely, Simon Strong. Before you take any unnecessary risks here, Simon, there are a few things that you really should take into account. First of all, Dark Young don't always travel one at time. They, they, they're often in company of friends. And this one, it may be a runt, but it probably has a big brother out there. And, you know, if you twist one of its tentacles too much or stamp on its hooves, its big brother may come along to its rescue. And that is unlikely to end happily. Well, it'll end happily for the dark young. Also, I mean, have you considered the other options? Yeah, this is a dark young, but you do say you're a retired strongman, right? I mean, what about th these things, dark young, people often forget, these are clever creatures. You know, mm. Why not challenge it to a game of chess? 
Ooh. Or that variant of boxing. What's that boxing called where they box for one round and then play chess and then box and then chess? Isn't that, you're looking at me confused. There is there is Wait, a sport of this. How can you tell that we're looking at you confused? <laughs> well, you know, this this is this is just how we look at you, Paul. Uh, that's true. But yeah, I would say either work up from you know like geraniums, aspidistra, and so on until you get up to like a tree, and then a dark young, or consider the options. You know, like Monopoly, Yahtzee, just not Twister. Oh yeah, not Twister, no. Whereas I know this would be a money a money making scheme that uh, dear old Jackson would have endorsed, I'd suggest getting hold of some grow bags, um, make make friends with this thing first, maybe feed it a couple of dead rats or something just to lure it in, gain its trust, let it sleep in the grow bags for a little while, and you can sell it as an attraction to all the local kids that are really into all these bloody Marvel films that keep coming out one after the other, and just call it Groot, <laughs> so that you can say come see the real life Groot, and until it grows really big. They'll probably just bring in dollar by the dollar. You'll be you'll be rich, man. Go for it. Well, actually, you're you're missing an opportunity there, which is if you do wrestle it and subdue it, you can cut some of those tentacles off and use them as as grafts. You can you, you can just plant them in the grow bags and grow a you know a whole field full of dark young. There you go. I, yeah. I, I can this see is, no way that could go wrong. This is arboreal exploitation here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't can't be doing with this. You just remember. To- be, have you forgotten Tree Beard and his sacrifice? That, that's Tolkien crap. I'm not going on either. He doesn't um, like Marvel. He doesn't like Tolkien. <laughs> Who is this guy? I like bits of Marvel and I like bits of Tolkien. Um, but uh, they, a little bit like what we do with parrots, that you keep saying things back to them. If you just keep going on with a record player that just says, I am Groot, I am Groot, I am Groot. I'm sure you can get the thing to talk eventually. Who is Groot anyway? Oh, for fuck's sake, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> You've not seen Guardians of the Galaxy? No. Ah. That's on your watch list. I'm I'm not speaking to you anymore. (laughs) It admittedly is one of those bits of the Marvel Universe I do like. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to rend the veil here and just say the whole thing of wrestling a dark young came up um, on the Yogg-Sothoth forum. I think it was Daniel himself that brought this issue up. He'd spotted that if you roll a maximum size and strength player character investigator for Call of Cthulhu. So you've got plus two build. Now, I made sure that a character of plus two build, this was one of my references with the rules. I I wanted to make sure, because it would be crazy, wouldn't it, for a human being to be able to wrestle a dark young? Obviously, the rules would be broken if that were the case. So I made sure that couldn't happen. Because you can wrestle somebody with a combat manoeuvre but only if they're within two build points of yourself. So a human with a build of two could wrestle something with a build of four. The odds would be stacked against them, but a dark young has a build of five. But, as Daniel pointed out, if you use the dice rolling mechanic to create your dark young rather than just the average statistics, you can indeed create a very diminutive dark young (laughs) with a build of, like, maybe four. So it's a bonsai young. Yeah. Or, yeah. or a dark fairy young. <laughs> dark infant. And then, and then and then Simon Strong can wrestle it. Yeah, you have to roll all ones when you're doing the, the dark young roll. And have to have to roll all sixes uh, for size and strength uh, for the human. Pretty much. And then so, Yeah, so it's and it's then you have to not go insane when you when it hits when when you see it and not be killed by its tentacle attacks. Or it's stomping attack. Well, and, and also that. there is the self-rectifying aspect of this. The Dark Young 
as one of their special abilities, have strength drain. So, you know, if it grabs hold of you and starts sucking the strength out of your character, you probably won't be billed to for very long. <laughs> Problem sorted. <laughs> Let's just not go into then Pop Cthulhu and the, the characters I've had in there who've punched out Nialithotep. That would just be getting silly. Yeah, I'd be quite happy in Pop Cthulhu to wrestle a Dark Young. That would, we should have had that happen, actually. <laughs> dark Young Fight Club. The first rule of that is... Don't wrestle Dark Young. The second rule of that is... Don't wrestle Dark <laughs> Young. <laughs> well, it's truly the dead of night now, and it's the end of the show. So it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.